everyone, welcome to the Cornea Corner, a podcast where two new optometrists demystify anterior segment diseases and specialty contact lenses while exploring what's new in the cornea world. My name is Priscilla Chang, and this is my cornea-loving co-host, Sharon Rashid. How's it going, girl? Going great. How are you? Doing well. Happy November. Yes, finally. I love driving on the streets, just looking at the leaves. I actually take the long way home whenever I'm out and about now. Mm-hmm. Taking so that beautiful. detour. <laughs> yes, I, pre- I really like it, yeah, especially with some music. One thing that I really like doing um, during November, it's the perfect time of the year where you can turn the heat on but then roll the windows down so I kind of get a little bit of both, a little <laughs> bit of like a cool breeze but then – Stay um, warm enough. <laughs> Just, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love doing that. It's actually been fairly cold, I guess, where I'm at. It's sweater weather now. Oh, no, I still have my shorts. (laughs) (laughs) So, Priscilla, have you had any interesting cases or um, have you had anything cool come up lately? Actually, yes. On Friday, my last patient of the day was a young female with Marfan syndrome, and she also had high myopia. Her manifest refraction was minus 13 diopters in one eye and minus 14 diopters in the other with three to four diopters of astigmatism in both. And she was interested in hybrid lenses. So I eventually fit her into wet lenses. So we'll see how her follow-up goes. Having someone with Marfan syndrome show up in my chair, it triggered me to remember the ocular manifestations of Marfans. And that includes most commonly tapis lentis, which is when the lens can dislocate in the eye, and glaucoma. But I forgot how these patients can also have high myopia and keratoconus. So retinal detachments actually occur in up to 25% of these patients. So definitely going to be following her closely with annual eye exams. Awesome. Yeah, I remembered a couple of those things like the glaucoma and the um, lens issues, but I didn't know about the high myopia. So that was interesting. Right. She was telling me how half of her family has Marfan, so they're all super tall. So this is a 13-year-old who's like 6'3", and I was like, ah, <laughs> she's looming right over me. <laughs> Girl, over you. I'm glad I wasn't examining her. <laughs> she would have been – she would have been – just super tall next to me. I'm I'm pretty short. <laughs> <laughs> right. Have you had any cool cases or stories? So I do have a story. I was really debating on telling you about this, actually. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever just sit there and question yourself and as a clinician and you're like, this is just so dumb. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people can relate to that, honestly. Um, new grads especially. So I had a patient that came in, and he was a status post-PK. Mm-hmm. He had a running suture, mm-hmm. and he complained of having irritation whenever he blinked. And so taking a look, there was an exposed suture. Mm-hmm. And so I was with the corneal specialist that I work with during my residency. I was with him that day. And he has asked me to remove sutures before. Mm-hmm. And so I – but they were interrupted sutures. Right. And so they – or they were single sutures. So I was like, okay, this one's a running suture, so it's a bit more complicated. Right. So I said, okay, that's that's fine. I'll give it a go. And so gave him the anesthetic, speculum, of course, and I put put it, him into this lit lamp. And I tried snipping the running suture. Uh-huh. As I was trying to snip, because you there's it's just one long suture. You have to kind of snip it up into five or six short ones. Are you using a razor or are you using a needle? What are you using to break your sutures? A 30-gauge needle. Okay. And so he had a lot of neo on his own cornea, not the transplanted cornea. Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty common with PKs. You know, you've you've got some neo at the outer edge. Sometimes it goes into the graft. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. With him, it didn't go into the graft. Anyway, I was trying to snip the running suture, and I nicked the neo. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and so I just I nicked the neo, and I was like, okay, that's okay, that's fine. He there's. He didn't move or anything, of course, because he was numbed up. And so I was like, let me just go to another spot on the suture. Yeah. And I kept nicking Neo. <laughs> so that's not the issue. Here's the here's the part where I was debating on really telling you about this story. Uh-huh. So there, there was blood kind of going all across his cornea, and I couldn't really see, you know, where the sutures were exactly. So I didn't have a clear view of where I was nicking. Oh, it was bad. <laughs> I didn't think it was that bad, but, you know, when I looked outside the slit lamp, it didn't look that bad. But then when I went back in, it was. Anyway, I asked him to blink, to blink away. 
<laughs> to blink away the blood. He did not. <laughs> yes, I did. I asked him to blink. So, you know, some of that, some of the tears would kind of wash away the blood. Girl, it didn't move. Wait, no, don't you have a lid speculum in him? Howard? Yes, I did. <laughs> He had a speculum in, and so he was blinking. I look outside the slit lamp, and I saw the speculum, and I was like, oh, wait. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> what a mess. It was so funny. Now it's funny. At that time, it wasn't. Um, anyway, eventually, I nicked it a little bit. At, well, one of the spots, but I couldn't get all of it. <sighs> so I had to go ask for help. Yeah. I went to the corneal specialist, and I was like, help me, please. <laughs> He was like, that's okay. That's, it's not a problem. He saw, he saw the Neo and and he was like, oh, that's common. And he just, girl, he went in and he was in there for like 10 seconds and that's it. (laughs) Anyway, very, very impressive. But here's, here's the reason why I told you about the story. Ironically, a few days later, I had another running suture patient Mm -hmm. and I got it successfully. So I was like, you know what? (laughs) I learned my lesson. I got it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So that's okay. I'll go ahead and tell everyone about my mistake because I fixed it the second time around. So Hey, you're a resident. That's the time to be learning. So no one really gets it right the first time. And it's especially hard if there's Neo with a running suture because running suture is like, like one up in difficulty to interrupted. Oh, man. It was a lot. But yeah, pretty good. Good for you. I'm proud of you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so have you heard of anything new with optometry or... Anything interesting? I've got one for you later. I have. I recently was listening to a webinar on Tapiza. Mm-hmm. The drug is called Teprotumumab. I can't exactly pronounce it. <laughs> Tapiza is way easier to pronounce. <laughs> but it's actually a, a, a drug that was approved January of this year. So it's taken me many, many months to hear about it. But it's the first and only FDA approved thyroid eye disease treatment. So indicated for like eye pain, redness, swelling. And so what it does for thyroid eye disease is that, you know, usually in thyroid eye disease, the immune system mistakenly attacks the muscle and fat tissues behind the eyes, specifically working at the IGF-1 receptor. So Tapiza works by blocking this receptor and trying to stop that signaling complex. So kind of addressing the disease at the source. So it is Mm -hmm. a fully human monoclonal antibody inhibitor of the IGF-1 receptor. So if you remember from thyroid eye disease, there's two phases. There's the acute and chronic phase. And in the acute phase, in the initial six months to three years, symptoms will kind of appear suddenly and worsen quickly. So there's active inflammation going on and there's scarring of the muscle. So I think when we think about thyroid eye disease, we usually think about the eyes bulging out. Mm -hmm. The outcome with this medication is that patients get to look more like themselves. Uh, some of the outcome measures of their study showed that 8 out of 10 people taking Tapiza actually got reduced eye bulging, and they mm-hmm. measured that at least 2 millimeters in SVOS 6 weeks. And then oh. 7 out of 10 people had improved diplopia, and 5 out of 10 res- had resolved diplopia, so no more double vision. Mm-hmm. And of course, improved quality of life. I was just like, oh my gosh, Like, why don't I know more about this as mm-hmm. an eye care professional? Because these people are showing up in our um, chairs. It's because it's how it's administered. It's an IV infusion, and the dose is based on body weight. So this isn't something that optometry would do, but we would you know, coordinate with the healthcare team to do it. There are eight doses, and the one dose is done every three weeks for five months. The first two treatments take about 90 minutes, and the remaining six take about 60 minutes. And so all these patients do need a pre-treatment eye exam, and the contraindications for it is pregnant women should not be um, getting it as well as it can worsen inflammatory bowel disease symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cost is actually pretty s- startling. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, you know, I, I asked you about it before and if you could guess, what did you say? Probably a few hundred dollars. Right. Well, I looked on GoodRx. It's actually $44,000. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. I should have known. As soon as you said monoclonal antibody, I should have known. That's going to be grands automatically. Right. But, you know, part of it, I think, is covered by insurance. And what the company that produces it um, is doing to help with costs is that they have, like, dedicated patient access managers that will kind of work through each patient's situation and, like, their insurance coverage and things like that and kind of figure out what is the best way to get it covered. So that's always a, a, a pro when the companies help you out. 
<laughs> well, let me tell you what's another pro. Me not seeing another diplopia patient. <laughs> <laughs> That's so right. So I'm all for it. <laughs> um, so I actually have an interesting drop to share with you. Uh-huh. I've been talking about this drop to everyone in clinic for like two months now or a month now. Uh-huh. Um, so I thought, why not bring it up here on one of our episodes? So the one that I wanted to talk about is called Epnique. And mm-hmm. um, I know now a lot of people are starting to know a little bit more about it. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of information that um, I learned. It's mm-hmm. a non-preservative drop uh, that was released he- this year, actually, July of 2020. It's um, it's used to treat acquired blepharitosis. So mm-hmm. um, it was FDA approved this July. And the mechanism of action is, uh, of course, everyone wants to know that. <laughs> It's a direct-acting alpha-adrenergic receptor agonist, so an alpha agonist. Um, and basically what this drop wants to do is improve patients who have a mild ptosis. It lifts the upper eyelid about one to two millimeters, mm-hmm. and that's supposed to last for six hours, actually. Wow. And hopefully regain some of the some of the superior visual field loss that some patients may experience. With- <laughs> you just have me thinking about those people who are like, I'm about to go out. I'm going to get my... And, you know, Upneak, my Lumify going. It's <laughs> great. About, about to be camera ready. <laughs> um, so with it being an alpha agonist, you and, you know, you're going to improve that myeltosis there. You should know that it's going to target the Mueller's muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, some, of the, some of the things to keep in mind with this drop, though, is with it being an alpha agonist, it's actually stimulating the sympathetic nervous system mm-hmm. and sp- specifically it targets the receptors on the heart. So you have to be cautious of patients with uncontrolled high blood pressure or even those patients with orthostatic hypertension. Right. So that's a bad adverse effect. And one other thing I learned about it is you also want to be careful with patients taking MOA inhibitors. So the monoamine oxidase inhibitors, mm-hmm. um, these are a class of medications that are used to treat depression. So this upneak drop may actually affect the metabolism of that medication. I wonder if punctal occlusion works for this to decrease the systemic absorption. That's a good point. I mean, I would probably tell my patients to do it. Even though it's a non-preserved drop, the instructions say to make sure the patient waits 15 minutes before putting in their contact lenses. It's only available through a specific pharmacy. The pharmacy is called RVL Pharmacy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I'll have a link for that pharmacy information, including their phone number, under the resources section of this episode, actually. Cool. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. That sounds like a really interesting drop to have in our toolbox. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I mentioned it to one of my patients, and I was so excited. Ironically, when I learned about this drop... I thought of a particular patient I had just met a week or two before that. And when I saw him for a follow-up, he was a GP patient for a keratoconus. Uh-huh. And I mentioned the drop to him. He was like, I don't think I need that. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Half your pupil is not visible, but okay. <laughs> One thing I, I remember when this drop came out, I did talk about it with some of my, my friends. And they were saying how not everyone's responsive for it. So instead of like just prescribing it, it is better to have them like go through a trial of it. So your patient may or may not have a good effect with Upneak. So one of my friends who has prescribed it in their clinic before, they have mm. like a bottle and they'll just use it in clinic mm. and like just let the patient like sit around for a little bit. They'll go out and do something. They'll come back and check. And then they're like, if it works, they'll be like, you are a great responder. This would be a great job. And if it doesn't, then they're like, we tried it and it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's actually very smart. I think they even have a 15-day trial period on their website. So, Oh, great. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. I don't know how the patient would get that. Maybe they have to register for it, but they did offer that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. But the adverse effects, it was only seen in 1% to 5% of the patients. So it's not you know, something that's very, very important, but it's just something to keep in the back of your mind. Good to know. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> well, let's see. This week, I know we're releasing this episode, same week as Keratoconus Day on November 10th. This is going to be sponsored by the National Keratoconus Foundation. And it's just like a day to highlight the disease and advocate for the individuals who are living with this disease. And patients are encouraged to share their story. And the National Keratoconus Foundation is also hosting a TikTok challenge. So (laughs) for our listeners out there, get involved, see if you can be creative with it. There are a few webinars that are going to be scheduled. Um, I think November 10th, there's a webinar for doctors where they talk about the modern management of it. So just like an updated treatment review for doctors. 
A week later, November 17th, there's one that's hosted by Oculus, and it talks about how to manage keratoconic patients who have cataracts. So how do you work with seniors who have multiple eye conditions? So that one's going to be really interesting. And then on the same day, there's going to be Dr. Bennett interviewing and talking to one of the ambassadors from the National Keratoconus Foundation, who is the San Diego Padre outfielder, Tommy Pham. And they're going to be talking about his personal experience in honor of World Keratoconus Day. So that's going to be really interesting. And lastly, same day, November 17th, SCCO and NKCF will be having a series focused on optometry students. So they, they have like four lectures talking about the condition. So definitely something cool to check out. It's a good time to kind of refresh on on keratoconus in addition to our podcast <laughs> and be able to help these patients out. They're offering a lot of webinars, so that's great. It's great that they're offering webinars for doctors and for students. <laughs> there are so many resources for patients out there, honestly. Um, can you guess a nationally famous basketball player who has keratoconus? Stephen Curry. <laughs> yes, you got it. <laughs> Don't say warriors. You are talking to an Oakland native here. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> so let me start off by um, telling everyone about what keratoconus basically is before we dive deep into it. Mm -hmm. Keratoconus is a non-inflammatory progressive eye disease, and it happens bilaterally, although it can be asymmetric. Mm -hmm. Basically, these patients have corneal ectasia, and then that cornea ends up protruding a little bit um, or a lot in some patients. Right. And it begins during puberty, and it progresses for about 10 to 20 years. And the most recently published research demonstrating the prevalence of keratoconus in the United States was about 54 persons per 100,000. That was in 1986. And then that affects one in 2,000 people in the United States. I feel like there are lots of patients with keratoconus. I don't know about you, maybe because obviously I'm doing an interior segment mm -hmm. residency, but even when I was a student uh, as a third year, I feel like I saw about three to four keratoconic patients. And I felt like that was a lot <laughs> at that time. Well, they're out there. And I will never forget my very first keratoconic patient that showed up in primary care. And we were the first ones to diagnose it. Because I remember trying to do retinoscopy. And I was like, even though I'm a third year, I thought I knew what I was doing. <laughs> but this is really weird. <laughs> the reflexes aren't straight. Yeah, it's, it was an interesting moment in clinic. And of course, we weren't anywhere close to the cornea clinic. So we're like, how do we coordinate care? <laughs> so yeah, I think I think it is pretty common. I think clinicians are more and more astute now to be able to diagnose it earlier. So that's always good. So that number may have gone up since, you know, we have better technology now as well to diagnose. Right, for sure. One of the studies did find that um, African-Americans and Latinos have approximately 50% higher odds of actually having keratoconus when compared to um, Caucasian patients. So interesting demographics right, there. Right, right. Well, I do know some risk factors for keratoconus. That includes Down syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos, and osteogenesis imperfecta. Some of the main environmental etiologies or kind of risk factors includes atopic disease, so people who rub their eyes a lot, and people who have asthma or hay fever. If there's a family history of keratoconus, sleep apnea. One thing that I did find out while I was doing some research was that there is a lower risk of keratoconus in diabetics, and it's suspected that there is corneal fiber glycosylation that happens. So it's as if these patients are doing their like cross-linking in their own eyes, and the cornea is getting strengthened, <laughs> so there's less ectasia. So that was kind of interesting. That's very interesting. Right. What we do know is age matters. So the younger the patient is when they're diagnosed, they tend to progress more aggressively than adults. And depending on when the onset of keratoconus, so when it was when it started, patients who are less than 17 years old are more likely to have greater than 1.5 diopters of Kmax progression within a year. And 88% of pediatric patients actually progress over three years. So the younger they are, the more likely they are to progress. So you got to watch these patients more closely than those annual eye exams. Mm -hmm. And those with greater than 55 diopters of Kmax at presentation were likely to progress at least 1.5 diopters of Kmax at the one-year mark. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing with identifying risks is topography is way more sensitive to identifying progression and changes than looking at just the VA or the refraction or pachymetry. 
So that was from like a meta-analysis. And that was really interesting because you would think that the rate of the thinnest pachymetry reading change would be clinically significant, but it actually isn't. Mm -hmm. um, in general, keratoconic eyes have lower collagen content compared to normal corneas. So the cornea thinning that we see in keratoconus is possibly a result of, you know, multifactorial degradation process and you get loss of the structural elements of the cornea. So Shawan, what are some of the signs that we can see in an eye exam? So some of the signs we can see in keratoconic patients, early on anyway, is going to be a scissoring reflex during retinoscopy. So what you are experiencing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so stay confident in your ret. If it's looking a little weird, it may actually be because it is weird. Right. Um, another thing is asymmetric refract refractive errors with higher progressive astigmatism. If you see a Fleischer's ring, Vogue-Strier, corneal thinning, inferior steepening, or Rizzuti sign, all of those are considered early signs. Mm -hmm. I remember, I think it was third year when I was taking contact lens or second year. So <laughs> one of those years, I remember when you do keratometry, once it gets to 48 diopters, that becomes a little bit suspicious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if patients have some of these complaints and their, um, their K values are around 48 or higher, I would recommend personally doing a topography right? just to, just to catch the early topography signs, which I'll go over in a sec too. Mm -hmm. One of the issues that I have with charting when it comes to keratoconus, and I used to be like this too, mm -hmm. is there's a lack of detail when documenting these early signs, when these early clinical signs, right. like, like how, how dense is the scar or how much Vogue-Strier is there? Or I'm just, I'm a little particular when it comes to things like that. Mm -hmm. During my residency, one of the reasons why I like working with one of the cornea specialists is if we had a keratoconic patient, he was so detailed in how he described these eyes, like how broad the cone was, like where is the apex of the cone, like just, just mm -hmm. from slit lamp. So he'd even look at the topography yet and he'll be able to really wow. look at this eye and figure out, is this visually significant? Like how much do we think it's affecting the central visual axis? And I was like, whoa, I did not know we can document this. So he'd be like... <laughs> his notes were a little bit longer, but you know, if you saw him, this patient mm -hmm. had a follow up, you knew exactly what you were looking at and whether or not something was new. Right. I'm a big fan of detail charting. I mentioned the Fleischer's ring. Sometimes we forget to use a cobalt blue light, but I've used it several times and I do see the Fleischer's ring better with that cobalt blue light. So don't forget about that. Some of the late signs of keratoconus include stromal scarring, acute high drops, and Munson sign. However, what if we can't see any of these slit lamp findings and we suspect that there may be corneal ectasia present? So like I mentioned before, that's when we need to hop on over to using topography. One way to observe for early or subclinical keratoconus is with topography. And the things you'll need to watch out for using the different topographic maps include posterior corneal changes on the posterior elevation map. Um, sometimes these occur before anterior corneal changes. You can also carefully look at the tangential map for changes in the anterior corneal curvature, and that could indicate the steepening. I think that's the first map that people usually go to. And finally, another useful map is the corneal thickness map, which may show increase in the rate of corneal thickness from the center to peripheral cornea. I think one of our previous episodes, we mentioned that the cornea is thinnest in the center, and it gets thicker and thicker as it goes more peripheral, which is normal. However, that rate of corneal thickness changes with keratoconic patients. So it's a, it's like a, a steeper change, like a higher slope of change. Yeah, no, you don't want to accidentally diagnose someone or mistakenly diagnose someone with keratoconus when they actually have EVMD or dry eyes or something. Right, definitely not. Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> right. Well, for the early detection, I think, of keratoconus, definitely that kind of placido disc-based topography is great. And the tomography, which not a lot of, you know, clinics may have, but of course, posterior changes are an early marker for ectasia and they come before the anterior surface. But, you know, what's been really interesting this year is, you know, seeing more and more of a recent addition to how we can look at corneal curvature, and that involves mapping the thickness of the corneal epithelium with OCT. So researchers have found that epithelial thickness is fairly uniform from the center and to the periphery in healthy corneas. So the epithelium, as we mentioned in our previous episode, is a highly active layer, and they, they very rapidly remodel and compensate for any changes. You know, if there's any stromal changes, they also kind of compensate for that. So in a normal cornea, the thickness is around, you know, 50, 55 microns. 
By contrast, though, in an ectatic cornea, the epithelial layer shows significant thinning over the cone, and it's sometimes surrounded by an annulus of thicker epithelium, so it's called the donut sign. So the epithelium is significantly thinner over the area of the cone, and then you get kind of that ring of thickening. So in early cases, the cone that is mild, sometimes the epithelial layer can actually mask the cone. So you get what looks like a normal topography. Yeah. But, you know, OCT epithelial mapping will not ever replace tomography, but it can definitely supplement in helping doctors improve their detection of subclinical keratoconus. And OCTs with FDA approval for epithelial thickness mapping include the OptiView and the Carl Zeiss uh, Cirrus HD OCT. I don't had any experience with it, but I've been watching a lot of webinars and it's like, oh, this is this is a thing that's been around. And as the technology and research has gotten better and better, we're now having more you know, tools in our toolbox to be able to help us out inside the exam room. Yeah, definitely. Especially with early detection. Another tool that we have in our toolbox is being able to use wavefront technology and detecting higher order aberrations in patients with keratoconus. Mm-hmm. So we talk about wavefront technology quite often, I feel like recently. And um, we throw that word around, but I feel like a lot of us may not know what this means. <laughs> right. <laughs> so this technology can be used to measure higher order aberrations to distinguish early keratoconus from normal corneas. So wavefront technology basically measures the optical qualities of the eye aside from spherocylindrical correction. So like the ovals or the comas and all that stuff. <laughs> Ocular wavefront technology actually really hit the ground running when patients who had refractive surgery would complain about the quality of their 2020 vision post-refractive surgery. Mm-hmm. So they would come in for their follow-ups and have 2020 vision, but complain that they're not seeing well. It's just not clear. And so that's kind of when this technology just really um, became more popular. Today, now it's a part of routine testing and treatment for refractive surgery, and it's starting to become more applicable to corneal ectasia, and including, of course, keratoconus. <laughs> So these wavefront aberration systems work by determining how deviated rays of light enter the eye. We have to remember that the ocular wavefront is limited by diffraction. And so we're expected to have increased errors with larger pupils. That essentially is just saying that there's more scatter of light if the pupil is larger. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically. It's kind of like when the pupil is small, you have that pinhole effect and you see more sharply. So these patients, they may have clear vision, but they have distorted vision, distorted clear vision. Right, right. And um, all higher order aberrations, except for two different kinds, are higher in keratoconic patients than normal eyes. And the centrally located higher order aberrations are significantly greater in keratoconic eyes and compared to normals. But the peripheral portion of the corneal wavefront remains relatively spared in keratoconus. And so we use our center cornea <laughs> um, for the you know most clear image that we can get. And so if that's where they have more higher order aberrations, it makes sense that their vision is distorted and just can't be cleared. Right, right. I Just talking about this just reminds me the first time I learned about point spread functions and how it's like, yeah, one light kind of coming in and then the person perceives it to be one light with multiple halos, multiple shadows. And so you can only imagine how disruptive that is to the vision quality, especially for keratoconics if they're driving at night or if they have those large pupils like you mentioned. Right. Do you happen to know any any other way that we can detect keratoconus early? We mentioned earlier that keratoconic corneas have actually been found to be softer than healthy corneas. And that's why we use technology like cross-linking to stiffen tissue and stabilize the disease. There is evidence that corneal biomechanical measurements like corneal hysteresis that's used for glaucoma can provide some information on keratoconus. So with corneal hysteresis, what happens is a puff of air is blown on the cornea and that air will distort the cornea. And this instrument will measure the deformation and reformation of the cornea after that puff of air was blown. Keratoconic eyes will actually deform more than your healthy cornea and will reform very differently compared to a healthy cornea. So they have two instruments in the U.S. for this, um, the Corvus ST from Oculus and the Ocular Response Analyzer, the Aura from Reichert. Both technologies have figured out how to use the statistics of this quantifiable data, and then they'll generate an index to show you normal versus borderline versus abnormal. So very helpful, quick information to kind of let practitioners know, like, what is what what is the keratoconic risk or what is the risk of ectasia? 
So I think this is in the pipeline to be rolled out in the U.S., but it's definitely being used in other countries. But if we don't have all these toys, there was mm -hmm. a kind of mnemonic that I learned from a CE lecture um, that I attended by Avedril. Um, Dr. Bobby Sines recommends that you should be suspicious for keratoconus, and it's easy as one, two, three. One mm -hmm. is if you notice one line of decreased vision, so best corrective VA is not 20-20. Two for two lines in the back of the cornea, so evoke striae. And then three was for greater than three diopters of astigmatism. And usually this is asymmetric. So very, very helpful. Oh, yeah. I'm all about mnemonics. <laughs> right. Um, from the same C lecture, he actually shared another mnemonic um, on early diagnosis. But it's imagine early spelled E-A-R-L-I. So early. E is for epithelial thickness mapping. A is for aberration or vertical coma. R is for resistance factor. So like more like kind of like the cornea hysteresis l is for elevation of the posterior surface <laughs> and i is for inferior steepening on the topography so i like that <laughs> some tips out there that's a good way to remember it right and you know can you talk a little bit more about kind of where we are now and general kind of trajectory for how we manage these patients after we've diagnosed them yeah, definitely. So luckily with keratoconus, management has come such a long way in just the past couple decades. I mean, we've we've switched from more of a reactive approach to a proactive one with a vast addition of knowledge on the on the corneal disease. Mm -hmm. So with the general trend of treatment, we're going to start off with no eye rubbing. <laughs> it's funny because when I was preparing for this episode, I actually texted my brother. He rubs his eyes a lot. And oh, my brother, too. <laughs> it bothers me so much. And he says his eyes don't itch. He just rubs them when he's thinking. It makes no sense. No. <laughs> he, at one point, he admitted that, it, that he had a little bit of itching. So I recommended mm -hmm. um, using aloe twice a day. And he did it for a few weeks. And he said it helped. But then he stopped, of course. So... It does take quite a long time to build a habit. <laughs> <laughs> Especially for brothers, I feel like. <laughs> Ditto. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he's, he's still doing it every once in a while. I've just learned to smack his hand. Oh, I feel so rude when I do it, but I'm like, oh, I'm cringing so hard inside. <laughs> oh, I don't care. <laughs> he needs to listen. I'm older. <laughs> um. So aside from eye rubbing, when it comes to management, we're going to start off with using glasses or spectacles to correct their vision. And if that's not mm -hmm. going to work, we need to move over. Like if their stigmatism gets too high or their, you know, their, their script just gets kind of out of hand, we can look into conventional soft contact lenses or even switch over to gas permeable lenses. And maybe once it gets to the higher end of mild or moderate, we can look into hybrids or piggybacking or even sclerals, you know, you can start off early with sclerals if mm -hmm. patients want to. As for more invasive strategies or more invasive management of these patients, the options that they have there is a deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty or a DALC mm -hmm. that involves removing the epithelium and the stroma of the patient, and it's, it's a transplantation. So these patients have to have a healthy decimase mm -hmm. and endothelium, though. Right. If they don't, then they need to switch over to a penetrating keratoplasty, mm -hmm. which is a full thickness corneal transplant. And other options that are not as invasive would be intracorneal ring segment <laughs> uh, implantation. But somewhere within all, this, all these treatments, cross-linking has to be considered, and the patient should be referred out for it when it's necessary. The corneal specialist that I work with, Priscilla, he actually requires the thinnest packs on the cornea to be 400 microns. Like if it's thinner than 400 microns, he's not going to do cross-linking on them. So refer them out soon and just don't wait for it to get mm -hmm. moderate. Once keratoconic eyes, you know, get to moderate or severe, there's sometimes so much scarring that, you know, cross-linking doesn't fix the scarring. It just mm -hmm. prevents okay. hopefully further scarring. So refer them out as quickly as you, as you can. Um, I described the previous management options a little, but when it comes to cross-linking, uh, FDA approved in 2016, and basically these patients just get um, topical riboflavin, which is vitamin B2, and then they have subsequent exposure to UV light to strengthen the collagen bonds in the cornea. And since it's FDA approved, cross-linking has been accepted by lots of insurance plans, so they're covered. However, the only 
Well, there's a couple different kinds of cross-linking. The only kind that insurance covers is the epi-off mm-hmm. one. So the epithelium on cross-linking is not going to be covered by insurance. Right, because it's off-label. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, one thing that is interesting about the thinnest packs, I, I am aware of the possibility to like artificially thicken the cornea. I, I think the cornea specialist I used to work with, like even if you have packs thinner than 400, what he'll do is he'll use like a contact lens. Um, to make the, the thickness of the cornea a little bit thicker so that when you do apply UV treatment, you have like a buffer. But the other thing is I know there are ways to kind of swell up the cornea for the treatment to be applied and then like it'll meet the 400 microns. So I think the biggest thing is just as optometrists is making sure we communicate with our ophthalmologist and see where their comfort level lies. But of course, referring these patients out as soon as possible is a no-brainer. Right. Don't wait on it. And what's really cool is that research supports doing cross-linking early. So if patients are diagnosed earlier and they get cross-linking, they're less likely to mm-hmm. pursue any surgical treatment. And there's a ton of good long-term, like 10-year studies on patients who get cross-linking and none of the patients end up needing corneal transplant. And so they're mainly done out in Europe because, as you mentioned, cross-linking was recently FDA approved in the United States, but I think there was like one in Romania that had 90 patients that had progressive keratoconus that was studied and Italy with 62 eyes. So we'll definitely link those in our website. So if you know, if you're interested, Mm -hmm. you can read up on that, on the safety profile. But Shawan, how soon can you start fitting specialty lenses after cross-linking? I can tell you just from experience, the specialist Mm -hmm. that I work with, like I mentioned, he wants his patients to wait six months after cross-linking to be fit into specialty lenses. When I did some more mm-hmm. research into this, um, speaking of speaking of doing research into this, there were a lot of articles that kept saying C3R, C3R. And I was like, I'm looking up cross-linking. What is this C3R? <laughs> Come to find out, it stands for corneal collagen cross-linking with riboflavin. So CCCR. So C3R. <laughs> and right. <laughs> I was like, what am I looking up right now? But one study that I looked into reports that patients fit with GP lenses three months after the procedure demonstrated evidence of epithelial cell stress, um, and they had an increase in superficial epithelial cell size and a decrease in basal epithelial cell density. So basically, it wasn't time for them to be wearing specialty lenses. Sounds like the eyes are stressed. (laughs) Yeah, stressed and pressed. It's too soon. (laughs) Well, to make patients better candidates for specialty lenses, surgeons may also try to normalize the steepness of the eyes with those intrastromal corneal ring segments that you were talking about. Um, They're also called intacts. And it was actually initially FDA approved in 1999 for refractive corrective um, procedure for myopia. And so the procedure involves inserting one or two plastic PMMA crescent-shaped segments into the stroma at the mid-peripheral cornea. So while you can do cross-linking to kind of prevent progression, the goal ultimately to help patients see better may be to include or to combine cross-linking with intacts, which is going to help remodel the cornea by flattening out the cornea, and this can reduce the refractive error and the K values that you may read. It is reversible, and there's a variety of different ways intacts can be placed, either as a single segment or as two or double symmetrical segments. So really, it just depends on where the cone is and which area of the cornea needs to be flattened. In the U.S., there are five Mm -hmm. different segment sizes, so different kind of thicknesses that can be inserted to help flatten the cornea, and it's usually inserted so the optical zone is about seven millimeters. And so I think the con of this really is kind of like glare, but in my residency, I remember there are a good amount of patients that they think their vision improves so much after intacts because they no longer have all those high order aberrations, I guess, coming inferior to their visual access, but maybe now like where the center of that cone is just more centered and so then they have better vision (laughs) so yeah super interesting yeah and the first intax patient I remember seeing was actually with you yeah (laughs) (laughs) during (laughs) during your residency and it was so embarrassing I did not know that it was used for keratoconus I just remember going into the exam room before you and before the ophthalmologist and I just saw some plastic in the eye and I was like I have no idea what this is (laughs) I remember talking to you about it. Luckily, I could talk to you about it because I definitely was not talking to the MD about it. (laughs) (laughs) I remember this. (laughs) We broke it down. We did look into it. Um, It was one of the many times that we looked into things that we weren't so sure about. And 
you you taught me all about it. And then the MD actually, I remember him stepping in to our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Because I think we were asking him, like, how do you decide, you know, where to put the intact segment? Because I think in our patient, I believe they only had one segment. So it was like kind of weird to think about because it was just like, well, if the cone's inferior and then you're sticking like an intact right below it, does that weaken it at the, you know, area of ectasia? Like what's going on? And he thankfully had the patience to explain it to both of us. Right. <laughs> so it was a good learning moment. Oh, for sure. Many, many good learning moments. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, I actually, you know, recently just um, taught one of the externs at my the practice that I work at. And he was like, yeah, we didn't really learn about Intex. Never seen it. And I showed him a picture and he's like, what? So I don't know if it's just becoming less and less common. But I think part of it is that we have kind of more tools in the toolbox again. So depending on the ophthalmologist in a geographic area, you know, they may or may not be used doing intacts on patients. So that's maybe why certain people aren't exposed to it as much or don't have the comfort for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure we talked about it. Right, right. I was like, it's probably on one slide in that one lecture about cornea <laughs> <laughs> refractive surgery. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I know it was in there. I'm sure it was. Right, right. Um, another option now for keratoconic patients to get some of their lost vision back is topography-guided PRK. So, you know, original cross-linking is meant to strengthen the cornea, and, you know, we want to halt the progression, but, you know, patients' visual acuity is usually still pretty bad. So in 2003, Wavelight developed technology to perform topography-guided eczema laser treatment. So this technology lets the laser identify and target where the raised areas on a topography is, and so if if you have an elevated cone, it can try to identify how to kind of treat the shape of the eyes to normalize the shape of the irregular cornea. So that's going to help improve best corrected visual acuity. So ophthalmologists have long believed that, you know, you should never perform PRK or LASIK on any eye that has ectasia because you can risk worsening the condition. But here we have, you know, or now we have this kind of option where you can combine it, laser ablation with cross-linking so you can strengthen the eye as well as get a refractive outcome out of it there's still a lot Mm -hmm. of research being done on like the timing of when to do do prk like whether you should do cross-linking and then prk like you know 20 30 months later or do it together and i think when you do it together you have better outcomes and at the previous or at the practice where i did my residency that doctor also liked doing it together as well Mm mm-hmm so lots of options out there for our patients. But of course, sometimes keratoconus can be so advanced that they need ultimate down, end of the line kind of treatment. And what, what does that show on? So sometimes it's too late for them to be able to utilize any of the management options that we mentioned before. And specialty contact lenses may not provide acceptable vision. And our last resort is to really just start new. So, you know, these patients would need a penetrating keratoplasty, like I mentioned earlier. And a PK is indicated for advanced keratoconus when less invasive treatment options just have not been successful and they don't provide adequate vision. And luckily, it's it's only performed on less than 15 to 20% of keratoconus patients. But of course, the biggest things with a transplantation is rejection. So we always have to keep that in mind. Right. My academy poster for this year actually was about a corneal rejection patient. Mm-hmm. She had came in and she was wearing scleral lenses and she was like, you know, this eye is just irritating me. It's because of the lens and I just can't mm-hmm. get it in. I took a look and there was a coup de deuce line. And I was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> so and there was definitely some other signs like some edema and things like that. But we had to have a talk and she really thought she was in the clear because she was nine months past her uh, surgery date. And this is something that you always have to worry about with with um, graft patients. Right. Luckily with the management options that we have, it's a lot better nowadays, but still important. But yeah, I think with these patients, it's important to note that like their cornea may still thin. So we got to watch oh, yeah. that, you know, graft host junction very closely. But as you mentioned, there's always that risk of rejection. As eye doctors, of course, we want to avoid PKP if we can and really focus on that diagnostic aspect and see if we can diagnose these patients even earlier so we can avoid them even, you know, being considered advanced keratoconus. But I heard there's some, you know, potential drops out there right now in research that can help treat keratoconus. Have you heard of him? Yeah, yeah, actually I have. So there's a new drop called IV Med. Uh, It's IV MED-80. And it's it's produced by 
Ivena, <laughs> so I V E E N A, and that's a private pharmaceutical company. Uh-huh. So what the IV Med eighty does, it's an eye drop that upregulates um, a lysol oxidase, and so this drop basically induces corneal crosslinking pharmacologically. Cool. And they're in the middle of their clinical trial. They're actually going to phase three. If it's approved, it's going to be used twice a day. And the goal of this drop is to flatten the K-Max and improve uh, the best corrected visual acuity. So we threw out the word K-Max a couple times throughout this episode. K-Max is seen on topography scans. It's just the max keratometry value. And so the steepest point on the cornea. And it can get up there with keratoconic eyes. Like I mentioned, this drop basically wants to flatten the K-Max. And so far, they've actually seen a mean K-Max reduction of 1.8 diopters. So it is improving it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we're seeing the expected results without any adverse effects. It's a promising drop. Pretty excited about it. Do you have any resources that you provide your patients with whenever you diagnose them with keratoconus? Other than the (laughs) typical generic in-office brochure? (laughs) Well, you know, I think one of the biggest things with keratoconics is, like, it sounds almost like a death diagnosis. Like, oh, you could potentially go blind. You may need transplant. You know, like, there's just, like, it's a very scary thing to be diagnosed with. And I think the most important thing is helping these patients understand, like, there's so much information out there. There's a lot of research going on actively to try to help with, the, you know, keratoconus diagnosis and treatment. And the biggest thing is, like, there are a lot of people out there who have it. And so... I think the most important resource to connect patients to is the National Keratoconus Foundation. There's like patient info packets they'll mail out. They do have some helpful webinars for optometrists um, and doc- or, and patients. And they even have one on genetic testing, which we didn't touch on. And they have newsletters and videos. Like if you have a GP, like how do you wear it? Like things like that. And there's some helpful information on insurance um, coverage or inf- insurance tips, like how to interpret your insurance coverage for cross-linking. So that one's a really, really key one to connect patients with. Um, have you had a chance to look on that website? Yeah, I have actually. You mentioned the videos, and <laughs> there are videos mm-hmm. on what keratoconus is. There's animation videos on cross-linking, intacts, um, penetrating keratoplasties. So there's a lot of useful information on that website. There's even information for patients <laughs> mm-hmm. on what to do if their claim has been denied by insurance. Right. No, that's that's key. I think it's really scary to think. There's sticker shock with cross-linking. So definitely a helpful resource for patients looking for coverage. Um, another really helpful one uh, or helpful website for patients is the Avidro website. It's called livingwithkeratoconus.com. And they have a breakdown, which I personally like maybe a little bit more than the National Keratoconus Foundation, but they have this like really nice kind of streamlined page on breaking down what keratoconus is, what is cross-linking. They also have a blog with stories from keratoconic patients and their journey, you know, whether it was to cross-linking or not. Another website that is really helpful to refer patients to is called livingwithkeratoconus.com. And it's a visual website, and it has a really great breakdown of what keratoconus is, what cross-linking is, and they also have a blog that shares different patients' stories and journeys, um, whether they eventually needed cross-linking or not. Um, and one of the most helpful pages is, again, on insurance coverage for cross-linking. So they actually have a map that will break down the, each state by the number of insurance plans that will cover it and what the insurance appeals process is and references. And every state has at least 6 to 12 insurance plans that will cover cross-linking. So I was very surprised by this. This is a really helpful website. And of course... Last but not least, there are so many social media support groups out there for keratoconus. There's one on Reddit that is part of the keratoconusgroup.org's, you know, kind of resources. And I kind of browsed it. That one's not as active, but I think a lot of people enjoy Reddit because you can kind of hide be- behind the an anonymous like username and really kind of get information. There are also multiple large Facebook groups. There's a Keratogonus community that was established in 2014 and actually has over 9,000 members. And this one's targeted at families of 
patients with keratoconus, also, you know, any friends if they want to learn more. Another one is the keratoconus group. That one has over 23,000 members. And this is the one where as I was browsing the posts that were on there, I found a post where there's a keratoconic patient who was sharing tips on like what they did at home. And they actually keep pinhole occluders around the house to just quickly spot see things like if they don't have their, you know, their glasses or their contacts in. And I thought that was such a helpful tip. And like people were commenting, be like, I thought those were so expensive. Like I thought only doctors could wear, like have them. Like I didn't realize, like, you know, we can just buy them on Amazon. And I was like, wow, what a great tip. Like, but that's one of the things that, you know, by being part of a support group, you kind of get to talk to people who have the same experience as you and get tips from other people experiencing the same thing. And then lastly, there's a large Facebook group that's that has over 8,000 members that are in the UK, and it's called Keratoconus GB. And it actually started off as a blog, so there's some helpful information on there. And there's another one I found that's under dailystrength.org slash group slash keratoconus. This isn't the most active, but there are, I think, like 100 people on there kind of like talking about their experience. Um and, but, you know, the biggest con with all these social media groups and just like a caveat to give your patients is that there are going to be patients on there trying to prescribe certain treatment options for other patients. And I think ultimately are telling these patients like, hey, if you have a question about how to use your contact lenses or questions about your condition, like please contact the doctor and don't just listen to another patient talk about things because treatments are definitely personalized and it's not just like one solution for everybody. Another thing with providing some hope for patients is that there is so much industry and research it's working hard on keratoconus and there's a lot of momentum and energy in this space like there were you know quite a few studies when i was looking that was actually on implanting corneal stromal stem cells to help regenerate the corneal stroma extracellular matrix and so there's a lot of research that we can follow now but it's not like people have given up on keratoconus patients there is just a lot going on a lot of it good information of course we'll have to write it all down and provide that information on our website there were just so many resources that we talked about. So don't worry about jotting them down. <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. And along with all that supportive patient information, we'll also have some corneal photos of patients with keratoconus and some examples of how to document the findings. Everyone documents things differently, but these are just examples of how we would do it. We're also going to provide a support card of information, and this is just going to show where patients can go to for support groups or, you know, if they have any questions, things like that. So we'll be provi providing those resources on our website soon. And until the next episode, though, check out the hashtags for the National Keratoconus Day. And those hashtags are hashtag World KC Day and hashtag NKCF, so National Keratoconus Foundation. <laughs> Speaking of the next episode, we'll be discussing a hot topic for those wanting to fit specialty lenses. So we hope you guys will stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to the Cornea Corner podcast. Visit our website, thecorneacorner.com and our Instagram page at thecorneacorner for additional resources, including photos of any of the cases that were discussed.